Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 34, 1 through 9. I'll be reading the NIV. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain, not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I had found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. I love that phrase, the stones which you broke. (laughs) You broke them. You will see quite a different response to how God responds and how Moses responds in that situation. I think that's a good passage to, uh, to unpack this morning. Let's pray. Father, we have sung songs acknowledging your great name and worshiping you. Father, our life is, needs to be characterized by worship, which is both the praise and adoration we direct towards you, but also the life that we live in service to you as our great God. Father, quiet our hearts for a few moments as we continue in worship as we open up the sacred word this morning. Amen. Well, we're beginning a new year, and one of the important themes that I would like us to emphasize as we begin the year is God's unbelievable generosity. This morning, I want to look at his overwhelming compassion that we see characterized in the Old Testament. This service and this message this morning is really setting a stage for the other messages that will come from the writings of Paul and the writings of John that spells out in more detail what is this overwhelming love and compassion and generosity of God look like. But I think I need to unpack a little bit our understanding of what is in the Old Testament because I think there's a lot of misreading and misunderstanding what we have in the Old Testament as if it's somehow contradictory to what we see in the New, which is not at all true. I think it's important for us to realize that our view of life, our lens, our worldview is framed by our clearest understanding we can have of the very nature and the very character of God. I think that's so critically important. It affects every aspect of our lives. Practical things like parenting, how we view God, how we see the way God relates to us can impact the way we parent, for example, and many other circumstances in life. So I see in the Old Testament, particularly, yes, in the book of Exodus, God's unbelievable and overwhelming compassion. Annie Stanley is a popular evangelical pastor these days, and he has so many good things that he says and so many good ministries he's doing. But he's writing a book and preaching a series on the relationship between the Old Testament and the gospel and the new with Jesus. 
And I think, uh, I haven't, I'm reading the book, and so I want to suspend some judgment as to what he's writing and what he's saying. But I have some deep concerns when I see some of the statements that he has proclaimed in his sermons, like this one. First century church leaders need to unhitch the church from the worldview, the value system, and the regulation of the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament. Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must do it as well. Quite frankly, folks, I think that is an unbelievably dangerous and a false statement. For many reasons. I could give many reasons. I could spend the rest of my time here giving reasons for that. But just let me just say one. All the scripture of the New Testament is written on the back and the understanding of the Old Testament. We need to recognize that all the source of Jesus' teachings and all the teachings of the apostles is seen and developed from the Old Testament. There are certainly aspects of Jesus that fulfills expectations of the Old Testament that we have no longer keep. But to say that there is, we have to unhitch from the teachings of the Old Testament, I find is dangerous. When the Apostle Paul wrote, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, that the person of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. What Paul was talking about was the Old Testament scriptures. For at the time he wrote that, there was not the New Testament canon. There were certainly writings that were being circulated in letters. But when Paul talks about all scripture being inspired for growth, that we can become thoroughly furnished, he is referring to the Old Testament. And as they preached Christ, they preached Christ, what? From the Old Testament. There's a person in the second century by the name of Marcion who was, his teachings were deemed heretical at the time because he believed Jesus was the Savior of the world sent by God. Paul was the apostle of the chief of the apostles, but he rejected the Hebrew Bible and the God of Israel. Marcion believed that the wrathful Hebrew God was a separate and lower entity than the all-forgiving God of the New Testament. Uh, quite false, quite untrue. Um, you have to then dismiss some books in the New Testament, which he did. He included only 11 New Testament books that he saw which supported his position. Revelation written by John, the beloved gospel or beloved apostle, is certainly out. He was not Trinitarian in his beliefs and the chief apostle Paul, by the way, in one of his epistles in 1 Corinthians said, it was Jesus who was caring, providing, traveling with the Israelites in the desert to the promised land. All the experiences of ancient Israel was fleshed out by the triune God, guided by the triune God, where Jesus agrees with the Father on all things, all actions declared and proclaimed and lived out in both the Old Testament and the New Testament in John 17. Stanley also states the Old Testament should not be the go-to source regarding the behavior of the church. And again, maybe you want to say the New Testament is the, the, the go-to. But again, all the behavior described in the New Testament, all the behavior has its origin in some place in the Old Testament. I want you to turn your Bibles to, to Exodus chapter 34, the scripture that was read. And I want you to fixate this morning on verses 6 and 7. I want you to fixate on them because I'm going to spend my time articulating. I want to read them again because this is the focal point of the message. Verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, 
The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintains love to the thousands, thousand, and forgives wickedness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes, which is a wrong term, by the way, uh, the use of the term, the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Folks, I think this is absolutely a critical passage that we find in the sacred word. It's critically important. It, because this is the self-declared character of a living God. And we need to interpret the Old Testament through the lens of this self-declared character of our God. It's so important. This declaration, by the way, is found all throughout the, the whole Old Testament. Numbers, historical books in Samuel, Nehemiah. It's found in the, in the poetic books in the Psalms. It's found in the, in the prophets in Jeremiah, Joel, Ezekiel. In Jonah, where he bemoans that character of God that he's compassionate and forgiving to his archenemies. And of course, in Micah, one of the great Old Testament prophets. Forty-seven times in the Old Testament, we have this self-declaration of God's character. It spans the whole Old Testament. And folks, it frames the character of the God who is the Son in the New Testament in all as aspects of His attributes are seen in the Exodus passage. I want to remind you of a passage I often bring to your attention from Ezekiel 33, 11. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn, He pleads with them in that passage. Turn from your evil ways. Because the God who is compassionate is also the judge. One who is just in all he does. But what we have in the Old Testament, folks, is a sad description of the stories and lives of people and nations who reject God. And therefore you see the judgment and justice side of God's character. It's important you understand that. For in the flood, when they destroyed the world of the flood, he said the intent of people's hearts is evil from their youth. And so what you see is not, you have glimpses of, these glimpses of people who follow God faithfully, and they're only glimpses in the whole Old Testament. Because it's a sad story of the lives of people and nations who reject God, and therefore they face the judgment and the justice that is also part of the very nature and character of God. You see, God chooses to enter into the nasty neighborhoods of this world with His redeeming character and message. And he entered into the life of Israel who had the advantages. He said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. They had special privileges of Israel to be the light to the world which they failed miserably. But God enters in, tries to work with them, work with the nations of the earth. That's the God we worship. So carefully we must understand Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. You know the back, historical background of this passage, but let me just refresh your memory. We recognize in the book of Exodus, as we begin, we have the slavery, the brutal, this was brutal slavery imposed by the Egyptians on the Israelites. And it was terrible. It wasn't anything like the indentured servants that we see in Israel as a primary means of slavery in Israel. This was brutal slavery. And the people cried out to God, and God in His mercy reached out to them and recognized because of this brutal oppression... And God does a magnificent deliverance. The plagues of Egypt. Here is the greatest nation on earth which boasts having the greatest of all gods in the world. And we see immediately a conflict between the deities of Egypt and the true God who is Yahweh. We also see a conflict between an anti-God figure in Pharaoh 
indicative of the, the great Antichrist figure that we'll see at the end of the age, who resisted God at all turns. And so God brings these plagues, which is a systematic assault on all the deities of Egypt, from the least to the greatest, to the very deity of the Pharaoh, the Osiris, the giver of life. And he systematically shows to them and the world at the time who is true and who is great, who is powerful, who is worthy of worship. And finally, Pharaoh gives in with the death of his son. And he gives in and he allows this magnificent deliverance in the people to leave Egypt. They find themselves trapped at the Red Sea in the crossings of the Red Sea. They were hemmed in. And God miraculously in a powerful way delivered them as they crossed over into the moving towards the promised land that was promised to them. You realize as you read the text that God was the one who provided faithfully water and food for their provisions day in and day out. He provided for them. They made their way to the Mount of God, Mount Sinai, where God brought Moses up to the mountain for 40 days. And he went up there to, what amazing experience. Can you only imagine being up on the mountain with God for such time? But as they were gone, some terrible things were happening down below which caused enormous grief and, uh, for God. They wanted somebody else as an object in place of Moses. This one who was leading them was God, who was gone. They wanted some visible presence. And so Aaron gave in to a golden calf that they constructed, either after the gods of Egypt or the Canaanite gods, we're not sure. But that was a mount because the gods would inhabit on top of the object of the calf and God would dwell in the gods. And they were really saying they were going to do a worship unto God. They were saying, we're going to worship Yahweh tomorrow after the calf was constructed. And syncretism took place where they were worship God, but yet they, what did they do? They started worshiping the object, which is strongly prohibited in the ancient world by God. This is really a self-celebration that they, in a sense, were the saviors, and they corrupted themselves by this sort of worship. And God, it says in the text, observes this, and he's absolutely furious. Can you imagine the grieving of the heart of God and how furious God might be, how angry he is that all he has done for them from the gracious deliverance of this nation all the way to the point at the foot of the mountain what God has done for them. And he's furious, and you can see why. And then you have this most marvelous interaction between God and Moses in chapter 34. It's unbelievable. Where Moses, because he is in tune with God, is concerned about God's reputation in this whole thing. He's concerned about how our people are going to view God. And God is angry and he, he postulates that he's going to destroy the people and establish a nation through Moses. And Moses appeals to the reputation of God. What about all the nations that will hear that you said you were going to deliver your people and bring them to the land of promise? And he appeals to God's word and God's integrity of his character. And the Lord changes his intentions as to what he was going to do. In one sense, it's rather interesting because who is any one of us can take God to court? God can do what he wants. We're subject to God, whatever he chooses to do. In verse 30, Exodus 33, he says, I will extend grace and compassion to the one I choose to. I can extend grace and compassion to who I want to. It's my choice. But God chooses to be true to his character and his promises. That's why he did not destroy them based on his promises that he had made and his great character. God's not fickle. God's intentional. He's consistent with his word. 
and consistent in his character. It's rather interesting when Moses comes down off the mountain, he is not gracious and compassionate at all like God. When you read the text, he's furious and he, he, he launches out and, at the people and destroys people. He's not at all in the spirit and heart of God who's gracious and compassionate. So let's unpack this for a moment, okay? The Lord, the Lord Almighty, and you can turn to it in your text so you can see it's from the text. The Lord, He is the Lord. It's a self-declaration of God. It's kind of like the statement earlier, I am who I am. There's only limited explanations we can or descriptions we can give of God. He is the Lord. He is mighty, powerful. He also moves into relationships in, with human beings because of the personalness of His covenant. I am the Lord. I am the one worthy of worship and a relationship. But first and foremost, what does he say? I am compassionate. The first characteristic he lifts up as being the Lord is his compassion. Literally, compassion means to be soft like a womb. Literally. It's the compassion of a mother to her child in the womb. And in a healthy situation, in a healthy mother... There's a deep compassion and care for that child that's in the womb. And that's the description. That's the best description of the literal meaning of the word compassion. I am that to you, he says. I am also generous. I'm gracious. And he's gracious and he's generous in his, uh, in his being gracious. Not expecting in return. He's kind. He sympathizes in many usages of the term of compassion. It's with the plight of the misfortunate ones. He hears the cry. Who does he hear the cry of? Those that are oppressed. He cares deeply about people. But I want to say this, folks, and you must understand this. There's something more important than life itself to God. That's more important. He's compassionate and loving, but there's something more important than life itself. That's trusting and obey, in a trusting and obeying relationship with God rises above our very existence in life. He goes on to say, I'm slow to anger. It's literally a nostril burn. He's, he's furious, nostril burn. He's furious over our sin because of the effects, the devastating effects of what sin does in the lives of people. God is furious over that. But he's patient. Genesis chapter 15, the Canaanites were already morally corrupt. It was 400 years before he judged them. He's patient, wishing that all could come to him, as it says in Peter's writings in the New Testament. Anger that's prolonged. God's anger cools or is tempered before he deals with people's sins. Sometimes God makes a point. Sometimes he looks and says, wait a minute, you strike quickly because he wants to make a point. You don't treat me with contempt. But the patience of God is amazing with Israel and the ancient people. He abounds. He overflows in love. Isn't that great? This steadfast, unrelenting love, this loyalty that he has in relationship to you and me, it abounds. It overflows. It's the centerpiece of this self-description of God is his love. God's reliable and unrelenting love for us is scattered all throughout the Old Testament. Abounding, overflowing in love. He also abounds in faithfulness or abounds in truth. He's completely reliable, trustworthy. He's true to his word. 
And he abounds. These two virtues are coupled together. Truth and faithfulness are coupled together in the Old Testament all throughout the message of the Old Testament. And he maintains loves to the thousand, some say to the thousandth generation. He repeats his promise to love, love forever. It's unrelenting and it's, and it's committed and it's continual love that he wants to express and will express towards people. Who? The people that walk with him. Extend it. He wants to maintain that love to the thousands. You see the contrast here to the thousands generation. He's also a God who forgives. God still judges. Sin is sin, but God forgives. Forgiveness does not eliminate the consequences. God extends forgiveness as a gift through repentance. Through repentance. He is a God who forgives. Boy, aren't you grateful? However, you will not clear the guilty. Compassion and grace are not signs of weakness and do not imply the perversion of justice. A Jewish commentary, Kasuto, a great Jewish commentary. Compassion and grace are not signs of weakness and do not imply the perversion of justice. Yes, God forgives, but yes, God also judges in his justice. The next phrase troubles us, visiting the punishment on the third and fourth generation. The term, the usage of the word punish, punish is only one derivative of the word that's there. Visiting, it means visiting. Visiting the wickedness to the third and fourth generation. When we choose not to walk with God, we lay a burden, a burden of a legacy upon those who follow after us. We impose an unpleasant state on our descendants and our children. The influence of evil is limited, uh, limited, but the desire for love is forever. Do you see the contrast for third and fourth generation, the thousandth generation? God does not add punishment, but the overall impact of wickedness will remain as a negative effect upon the family and upon the community. Written by a great commentary, James Bruckner, in the book of writing on Exodus. God does not add punishment but that the overall impact of wickedness will remain as a negative effect upon the family and the community. Generational sins, generational consequences. As we choose not to walk with God, folks, it affects the generations and our children and our grandchildren that follow after us. How does God present himself in the Old Testament to us? How does he present himself to us? compassionate his grace his love his desire to extend forgiveness to us he desires more anything else than a relationship what's anything else but also God in his very nature and character if we choose to walk away from him there's also consequences that we'll experience and generations will experience when they choose not to follow God God does not desire to punish the wicked God desires that everyone would come to acknowledge him so they can experience afresh and anew the power of his grace and his goodness. In the problem of pain, C.S. Lewis says, all of all powers God forgives most, but he condones least. He is pleased with little, but he demands all. Our character as people our character as we as people should flow from the very character of God. We have a generosity and a compassion for the downtrodden, for the disadvantaged, as compassion is described. If we do, we'll be like God. 
Do we extend forgiveness when forgiveness is needed? All the characteristics that are here, we need to grab a hold of in our lives. And folks, we see a correlation to this in the New Testament. We see the fullest expression, the fullest expression of that in Christ. The unbelievable love and compassion and grace of God. But we also, as we read carefully the words of Jesus, we also see very clearly the judgment themes that are there. Let me leave with this statement that I think is important to us. There's a big difference between proclaiming the truths of God and the gospel of God. We need to do that with clarity, with care and compassion. But that is not at all an attempt to make the gospel palatable to an unbelieving audience. You know what I'm saying? We have to present the truth with clarity, the gospel with clarity. Because who likes to repent? Who likes to repent of sin? Who likes to realize that they have to be spiritually broken and bankrupt to come to God? That's not a palatable message for the world we live in. It's not about palatability. It's about clarity, care, and compassion, and we let the Spirit of God touch the hearts of people. Amen. Let's pray. Help us, Father, as your people, people who follow after you. Father, help us breathe into our very being the self-described, your self-described description of your character. Father, help us to meditate on that. Help us to be, help that to be a guiding light for us. As we seek more than anything else to be like Christ, to follow after him in every day and the experiences of each day. Amen.